What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Once around the park, James, and don't spare the horses. Well, by my count, we are, what, three or four sleeps away from going into stage two here in the province of Ontario. It's just like everybody's so excited because we're moving from phase one to step two and so on. And I don't know. Let's get into it. Dave Trafford here with Keith Leslie, John Wright. It's On the Ledge, the Ontario Politics Podcast. John Wright, I was talking to somebody earlier this week and they said, why the hell are we so excited about a date? Well, like we we put a pin in the calendar and somehow think that we've accomplished something rather than looking at this is what we should expect to be in terms of behavior. This is what we should expect in terms of outcomes. We're just kind of putting a pin in it and saying, now I can get my hair cut. That's, that's just how frivolous we are approaching where we are in the pandemic right now. You know, it's, uh, it's interesting because uh, my son actually, who's a uh teenager and he's just come back from Dalhousie and he got hired at St. Louis or actually how he calls it St. Louis uh, for the training <laughs> manuals It's uh, I've been saying it differently and, and Keith they have a place down in Dartmouth and also in Halifax and so he's all ready to go for that but the, 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 the patios have been absolutely explosive. I mean, he was there the other night. He was the only busboy on duty the other night and I think for about nine hours just ran his butt off um, but people were, were absolutely I mean, waiting two and a half hours to get a spot just to have wings on a patio. And I think this pent-up reaction to this date is something that is going to be explosive on one level. I'm not sure on other levels what how it's going to play out. I mean, people going to the office, I don't know whether people will do that. I don't know whether or not Tim Hudak with, um, you know, the recommendations and how people, you know, will be incentivized to go out and take take part in different things around the province uh you know getting out to hotels and airbnbs and things like that, whether that's going to work but i know at the first stage of this people are very enthusiastic to get out and to um, just feel some form of freedom and that's the first place that we've seen it i mean in toronto i don't know how it is in other places but those those you know it's been literally an hour and a half to two hours of lineup just to get in to have a beer in a patio and that's that's got to be good news for everybody well, and I think, Keith, it's good news for the politicians, particularly generally speaking. But, you know, this person I was talking to, he said, OK, but let's just step back for a second. What does that date actually represent in terms of where we should be moving forward, i.e., is there any kind of plan around this? You know, what should we be expecting? Behavior around double dose vaccines, that kind of thing is getting lost in this excitement. I understand why people are giddy about getting out. But policy wise, I mean, 
we can't just hang it on that. Well, there is more to the policy, of course. And, and I was, I got to admit, quite surprised that the government, you know, leaking the fact that it's going to go two days early with step two, one of those days being a holiday where everything's closed pretty much anyway, was greeted with like just great news. People were really welcome that news. So people are really anxious, even if it is that one sort of full day early uh, to get out and do normal things. Uh, but we do need to know then uh, when do we go to step three? And the plan says you need to have at least three week intervals in between. But we've also, the plan says there's certain vaccination criteria that apparently have been met already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then what else can we do if we've done that well in the vaccinations? The hospitalization numbers are way, way down. The new case numbers are hovering just below 300, but still going in the right, right direction. What is the plan for, can we move up that step three, stage three, phase three, whatever the heck they're calling it these days. But that's the one that's really going to open things up. Yeah. That's the one yeah. that people want. So if we have to wait three weeks for that, then let's have it affirmed three weeks. Let's know what that date is. But tell us what the criteria are. And can those criteria be met in a two-week time period? Seeing as the one key one, the vaccinations, is already there. Uh, I don't know, but there should be some possibility. It should be opened up. Here's the plan. Here's what we need to meet. And if we could go early, here's where we're at. But right now, there's still, you know, let's face it, they're still hesitant when we're going to step two. Uh, two days early. So I don't know if step three is going to come earlier, but we need to see that plan. And step three is what everyone really needs to get to and get to as soon as possible. Well, I wonder how much civil disobedience there's going to be. You know, the barbershop around the corner is saying, to hell with you, I'm opening on Canada Day. I can't wait for the bylaw officer who's going to have to pull the gig and go and write that guy a ticket. They should all be open on Canada Day. We should just say celebrate Canada Day by spending money in these local establishments. But I think there's two things to that that, that you raise. <clears throat> First of all, I, I was a bit surprised as a human being who's been locked down for this long, that the criteria was put out that was very clear saying, if we reach this target, we're going to be able to go out and you know party and do whatever we want. Well, we've met the criteria and yet we're still held back. So I was a bit you know, taken back by <clears throat> the fact that we haven't stuck to what they said that they would do. But the second thing is actually, we're going to end up with a case very soon where whether you know, uh, Dr. Tam says we're going to come back with all kinds of guidance for all of you people. You know, you can meet with these. We're going to come back with a point very soon where people just don't care. I mean, we're going to have mm-hmm. enough people who are who vaccinated and they're just going to say, screw you, I'm going to do whatever I want. And then, you know, it's going to come down to the fact of how do we identify those people who are vaccinated and those who are not? You know, it's almost like the rules that have been put in place are suddenly going to be lifted because people are just going to say, I'm double vaxxed. I want to go out. I'll see you later. So there's going to yeah. be this tidal wave of people who just say, screw you, I'm going to do it on my own. The one thing that, again, <clears throat> seems to be holding back everybody is Waterloo. You know, when you look at the variant uh, there, you know, it, uh, it, it is having some impact and people are concerned about it. But the new, um, uh, the, the new uh, health doctor for the province seemed to be okay with that. And it was interesting listening to his press conference because, you know, I, I didn't seem to get a sense of whether he was more pro or more con on how we were going to be doing things. He, he was different than David Williams. But I, I'm not sure how they're going to handle the fact that if, you know, 80% of the people are vaxxed once and half of them are vaxxed twice, how they're going to be able to control anything because people are just going to go and do what they want. Well, Dr. Tam said as much, what, two weeks ago? Well, this is all going to come down to local decisions and people are going to have to have their own risk assessments. We're already doing that, let's face it, in, in many respects. That's how we've behaved over the last probably six weeks as you know in varying degrees um but here's the number that really i think we're we're not talking about maybe we should be if we've got almost 80 percent of adults in ontario who have taken a single vaccine 
doesn't it suggest that we're going to have at least 80% be double vaxxed? I mean, who the hell is going to get the first shot and not get the second one, right? Absolutely. I mean, this makes perfect sense. You, you can tell where your target is, your easy-to-meet target. And I, I guess objectively everyone wants 95%. 80% is a really solid double vaccination rate. Sure is. So if we've got 80% as a first rate, I agree with you completely, Dave. Why wouldn't we see that as a second rate? As intention. Everyone's got the intention. And even some people, you know, if you had a negative reaction, there might be a few that don't want to get a second jab. But you've already had the reaction. Get the second jab, get fully vaccinated. And I just don't see anybody having that debate with themselves at this point. Uh, the government needs to be clear about where we're going with this, though, and, and lay out, as John said, uh, people are starting to make their own rules up, and they have been for a while now. And once you're double vaccinated and you know, okay, I've waited two weeks after I'm double vaccinated and my whole family's double vaccinated and we've all waited our two weeks, we're going to feel kind of invulnerable to COVID in a sense. I know you can still get it. I know there are cases of this. We're not saying you're invincible, but you're going to feel a little bit that way, especially after you've been cooped up this long. The weather is getting to peak summer. Uh, and people need to get out and socialize. And as you see from, you know, 90-minute lineups to sit down and have wings and beer on a patio just to get out and socialize. So I, I, I think we need to get there, and we need to get there soon. Well, to make the point, we j- just booked our flights uh, this morning to uh, Halifax uh, for a month from now. So, uh, and, and that's because the Atlantic provinces have decided, okay, uh, we can all be treated like adults if you're double vaccinated, and, and that's what's going to happen. We'll just have to show some you know, proof, and we've all got our documentation. Oh, but come on. We, we had a little bit. Of, we had 24 hours of politics down here going crazy with the border, too. Well, I was going to say with, with New Brunswick. Sort of inflated, yeah. and then you know, New Brunswick said, well, yeah, all of Canada came in. Nova Scotia went, well, no, they can't. Then anybody coming from New Brunswick. You're going to have to show us you have double vaccinated or one vaccination, 14 days, seven day vaccine. Show us a flag of this. But anybody from Newfoundland or PEI, you don't have to show anything. You can come in. Don't care if you've been vaccinated. It was just 24 hours of nonsense. And then we had a conservative MLA at a hell come up and dictate the border. We're going to close this border until you reopen it. And then, of course, that brought out the anti-vaxxers. And they shut down the Trans-Canada for 20... Holy cow. Now everything is settled down. The Atlantic bubble will be sensible and everybody from across Canada and after Canada Day, we're all good. But yeah. boy, it just shows that even the provinces that handled it all so well for 15 months, when it came down to just reinflating that Atlantic bubble that worked so well, politics jumped right in the way. And, and, and you know, it's been sorted out, but still the, the, the dream portion of Canada that the rest of the world looked to, they looked pretty stupid for 24 hours. It did look stupid. <laughs> But you know what's interesting about this is it was only two months ago <clears throat> that uh, Mr. Ford, in fact, was um, headed to his mother's basement. I mean, it was screaming and yelling, and <clears throat> the government was on its butt, um, not being able to move much forward at all because they were, you know, being screamed and yelled at by everybody. And here we are, two months later, and it's quiet. I mean, the the whole communication aspect of this is is very quiet. Things are rolling out. We've had a cabinet shuffle. We've had the notwithstanding clause. Everything is quiet. Everybody's going out to the patios. They don't really care about the other things. Um, what, What I'm interested in is the cabinet shuffle itself because... You know, some some of the players changed, obviously, but the one that struck me that didn't move was the Minister of Education. And and I'm a bit at a loss for that, um, uh, and somebody must know why, but I, I was very surprised that Stephen Lecce actually ended up staying where he was and not moving, based on the fact that he had apparently said that he might want to move. Um, but there were some good moves in the cabinet, I think, but everything is very quiet out there. And it'll be interesting to see how all of this comes together in the fall when they decide to come back, which will probably mean a new throne speech, you know, and 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 new economic statement, like turning the page and moving on to the new part. But things are relatively quiet out there. 
Okay, I want to. I've got a thought on why Lecce is still where he is, and I do Please. want to get into the into the uh, questions around the cabinet shuffle. But I just want to stop down for a second and remind folks that um, we're launching a new. I'm launching a new podcast. It's coming out on the seventh of July. It's called the Next Normal. Have a listen. Normal. Characterized by what is considered usual, typical, typical, routine, routine, expected. expected. It sounds safe and staid. But our normal, usual, typical, typical, expected, expected, routine, routine, turned chaotic, disorderly, dislocated, and out of control. When COVID-19 hit us in the spring of 2020, the pandemic sent the world reeling, forcing us to shut down economies, forcing us to recalibrate our normal, forcing us to confront the what's next, what's next for jobs, for education, for families, and our health and well-being. This podcast ponders how we will live in this COVID era. What's on the horizon? What should we expect? Where are the opportunities? I'm Aaron Trafford. I'm Dave Traff. And we explore the what's next in the next normal. July 7th, wherever you get your podcasts. So thanks for uh, tolerating that. So that Aaron's my daughter and she and I have stood up. uh, uh, It's called the uh, Story Studio Network. And we are um, producing shows like this uh, out of that uh, network. So there'll be more to come. We've got uh, two shows already ready to go to stand up. So, and we're dealing with big issues. So to your point, John, you know, what's next as far as the um, education minister is concerned, here's, it might be crazy politics. Don't know, but I'm thinking Keith, that the reason you leave Lecce in there right now is because there's very little runway between now and Labor Day and getting a plan in place to run it. I would not want to inflict that on anybody else on my team in the, as a front bencher. So the worst case scenario is it gets screwed up. Lecce gets, he's gets tossed shortly afterwards. The best case scenario is they come up with a plan and everybody's happy. We're back to school and Lecce can kind of go off and do his thing and leave the portfolio quietly either way. If they've got that kind of plan nearly completed or in the works or ready to go, they wouldn't have Stephen Lecce there to implement it. This was a chance for Premier Doug Ford to show that he wants to reset his relationship with the teachers' unions. He wants to do over. Let's, let's start again. We've definitely got off on the wrong foot. We never got onto the right foot at all. They're not going to do it with Stephen Lecce staying in place. I, too, was really surprised that he wasn't shuffled out of there in the, in the uh, uh, recent shuffle because we had heard that he wanted out, that he was afraid that the teachers' unions were going to target him and his local riding to be defeated in next year's election, and he wanted some other portfolio. He's kept there. The health minister stayed there. The finance minister stayed in place. The big three stayed in place in that cabinet shuffle. And of course, Rod Phillips was brought back in. And and yet, uh, after less than six months in the penalty box for his uh, St. Bart's vacation when we were all in a lockdown, and yet there hasn't been much of an outcry over that at all. I suspect in, in many cases, because most people who look at this closely will realize he's been handed the long-term care portfolio. And speaking of not much runway for a government to turn a situation around, I don't think by next June's election that there's much they can do in long-term care uh, to settle it down. You know, I mean, the 4,000 deaths from COVID, uh, the, the second wave devastated COVID, and it was all to blame on, on this government's slow actions and inaction. Uh, so Rod Phillips has got a heck of a chore ahead of him if he can do that. But as for Lecce turning things around uh, by September, I don't think the government wants to turn things around by September. 
Well, I think maybe the other side of it may be that no matter what who what stripe of government is in place or what uh, minister is there, you can't reset anything with the teachers. I mean, they eat their own, right? So, uh, you know, maybe they, you know, thought that this was going to be, you know, how, how do you bring in a new person, have a new relationship with the teachers when, in fact, you know, they, they basically want to march to their own drummer anyways. But the, the real issue is going to be, how can we prepare for the fall with kids going back to school in that kind of a relationship where we don't know what the you know benchmarks are going to be? Yeah. Um, all the promises to do renovations in the school and things like that. I mean, we're seeing now, you know, uh, in some cases we've got uh, schools that are being renovated, but not all of them are. Like, I, I don't know what's going to change at all, but I do know that it's, it's a fairly partisan jab every time that, you know, uh, the minister goes to the podium. Like there's always something that that is very partisan involved in that, so I don't think it's going to be a portfolio that that is going to settle down at all. Um, what what I thought was interesting though was all the the members who got turfed. It really was the day of the long knives, wasn't it? Where those yeah. people, you know, you sort of heard that there were. 10-hour cabinet meetings with people screaming and yelling at each other um, when we were saying back in January, my goodness, I mean, why is it taking 10 hours? I mean, you got the premier sitting in the chair. Now we know that there were probably five members there <clears throat> who were all representing areas outside of the urban areas who were probably holding up everything, and they're gone. I mean, that's it. That's it. So it'll be interesting to see how the cabinet process unfolds going forward because it seems that there's some new faces, and um, and a lot of the obstructionists have, have been turfed out. Not that it's going to make, I, I think, much difference. I mean, when you had John Yakubuski turfed in, in you know, and, and you've got Pembroke and uh, that part of the world, they're not going to vote any other way. I'm sure they're going to be upset that, that their member has got turfed, but the reality well, is they're going to vote Lori, conservative. Lori Scott was among those people. Yeah, and then that's, we talk true. About that's Lori, true. Lori, Lori Scott, uh, you know, being in a riding where, you know, it was blue torn all the time. The only time that riding didn't vote conservative was when John Tory was running in that riding. And she stepped aside. Talk about a loyal she Tory did. getting it this time. She stepped yes. aside from that extremely safe seat to let John Tory run as the leader in seat. And of course, he lost the by-election. Talk uh, about she won it back. But, oh, yeah. But to, to turf her, uh, she wasn't doing a bad job as infrastructure minister. I hadn't heard any complaints about what she was doing she in that. Just, she just appointed a new chair of, infra, uh, of infrastructure Ontario. I mean, yeah. like three days before she was invested in it. Er, Ernie Hardiman at, at, at Agriculture and Food. Talk about a well-respected, low-key minister. But again, one of the veterans, he'd been there since the mid-90s. That, it was just, and, and again, he took it with, well, you know, you just move on. He's just one of those guys. But all five that were dropped... Uh, are in what we would call normally safe conservative seats. But as Laurie Scott proved, there may be no such thing if you really don't like the candidate. Yeah, yeah. So I, I just think that when we watch those kinds of things unfold, hmm, um, that might be something that comes back to bite you in the butt. But anyway, let's go to the Rod Phillips thing, because I think, you know, you, you, will, you mentioned this, Keith, and I'm wondering, John, whether or not there isn't a better person in the cabinet to actually deal with the long-term care, to kind of bring it, settle it down. We're not going to fix everything in a year, but at least to give a sense of stability and some kind of vision around a plan that he's pretty good at doing that. I think he'll deliver it. I also think there's a, another part to this that um, a lot of people don't know, but Rod lost his mom back in March. And um, she was a senior. And I think he has a perspective and a commitment to this 
portfolio that goes deeper than just being a political commitment. I think he does want to make things better. But, I mean, Rod has um, has been the guy who has, you know, been involved with tough portfolios. Environment is not the easiest thing. He was able to do that. He's, he's able to come in and build bridges in the way he talks about those portfolios. He keeps them relatively clean. He also has recommendations on what should be done. I mean, he, he, he doesn't have to conjure up uh, a framework or call people together. He has a commission that actually has produced a whole range of recommendations, which he can now embrace and move forward on. Um, so I, I think he's a good choice for the position. But it's also interesting, of course, that he's one of the three individuals who are in the place to put together the platform for the party moving mm-hmm. into the next election. Yeah. So a very powerful minister, uh, when you think about, uh, you know, where he was in the penalty box. My goodness, to be in a penalty box during that frame, that that's a luxury, my God. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I think there probably were a lot of people who would have loved to have been in that penalty box. But he's now back and welcomed back by the media. I think there was a one-day wonder in terms of, you know, reminiscing about his uh, mistake. But uh, I think he's a very powerful minister. He clearly has the ear of the premier, and he's got now his hand not only on one of the toughest portfolios, but also the party and leading into the next campaign and, and being one of the most important people in, in the party itself. So I wonder how the autism parents fe- felt, uh, Keith. Uh, I mean, seriously, we, we end up hoping for better, and they get Marilee Fullerton. Uh, w- was she being punished or promoted? That's a promotion. That's a bigger ministry, community and children's services, uh, than long-term care, which was a brand new junior ministry. And even at, you know, the commission found it, it was really a poor little sister under the Ministry of Health, even after it was separated out. No, this is a big promotion for a minister that thoroughly screwed up long-term care. To John's point about Mr. Phillips being benched uh, during that period, he wasn't in cabinet when phase two was so poorly handled at the long-term care homes yeah. and when the most deaths occurred. So that is actually a good Mark in, in, in Mr. Phillips' favor. Uh, to see Ms. Fullerton, though, Dr. Fullerton, excuse me, go over to Community and Social Services, Children's Services, it's almost shocking. And, and What uh, could go wrong? What could possibly <laughs> no, go wrong? Seriously. I mean, this file was She's already... She's a doctor. Uh, wow. This, this <laughs> file was screwed up two ministers ago by the progressive conservatives when they wanted to you know, end the autism wait list. They had good goals, but they really, really, the unintended consequences of their actions really screwed up the file. And parents are now mortgaging their homes to get services that should have been covered and paid for because they're getting minimal payments, if any payments. The whole system is just a complete mess. And to see that Dr. Fullerton is going to be put in charge of somehow straightening that out, ironing out all the mess and entanglements in that and getting money to families before next year's election, Good luck with that, and hopefully a new a new minister will make a big change there. Uh, I, I see the the families of of of, of people with uh, children with autism are trying to express hope. They're saying, you know, we hope it's not just a new face, but please, it must be more than a new face. There must be action and plan to go with it. We haven't seen it yet. We've just seen massive mess up of this file by the PC government. M- planning and 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 sort of taking on the the difficult task at hand um, probably is nowhere near what we're all going to face as we get more details coming out about the residential schools. And I know, John, you were doing some polling this week about Canadian attitudes. We heard about the story out of uh, Saskatchewan, 751 graves. It's estimated that they have found near a residential school there. We add that to the 250 odd in Kamloops, more than 100 and 
in Manitoba, and we got, I guess, the announcement from the province a week or so ago that they were going to invest money to make those same inquiries and searches at schools here uh, in Ontario. We only know that those numbers are going to continue to uh, to rise. And it, it's interesting to me to hear the way non-Indigenous Canadians are responding to this. I get a sense, and you will know far better than I, but my own sense and hearing it on in the media, etc., is that there is a deep-seated sorrow, if you want, nationally here, that we fully did not appreciate what was going on. And to some degree, people were feeling guilty because it happened in, in plain view uh, or, or, you know, it, it, right in front of them, and they didn't realize what was going on. We, we, we feel like we have been sort of uh, failed by our education system that didn't really give us a clear picture of what was going on. And as I have conversations with members of the First Nations communities across the country, I fully realize and understand what white privilege is. I mean, I am privileged to be a white man in this country, and I will never, ever, ever, ever face the kind of discrimination, the abuses, etc., that the First Nations uh, communities have faced historically. So, I, and I say all that just to kind of as a as a word salad. But you know, your your numbers that came out only reinforced, I thought, what I was hearing on the radio and just in terms of personal conversation. I've polled on the public for 30 years on every topic. And in fact, one of the very first things that we did at Angus Reid many, many, many years ago was we actually did what are called syndicated studies. And one of them was uh, what we used to call the ABO study, which was one of the first studies on Canadians' attitudes towards Aboriginals at that time. And, you know, when you go through the Oka crisis and then you go even to the blockade that was, you know, not too long ago in this country, I have never seen on any issue an inflection change than what I've witnessed in the last two months. Never. Um, I mean, we have close to 60% of the public who has been um, emotionally um, motivated and impacted by what's happened. Like we're, we're, we're at a changing point in our country when you have close to, you know, you've got more than 80% of people who believe that the international criminal court should be involved in doing this uh, investigation and that there's going to be a lot of uh, changes coming up. And, I, and Dave, I think the real issue is that we can talk about policies and they are all very abstract. I mean, it's just abstractions about, you know, well, we've got to get water done here. You know, it's out of sight, out of mind. But the, the biggest impact and I can see it in the demographics. They're not just the young people who are, uh, you know, very enjoined with this. I mean, young people today are the most volunteering, most active, you know, least prejudiced group in our society. That's just who they are. But but women who have children are the most impacted by this. Mm. And And I think it's the visualization of what could be. If you take 139 places and if you said, listen, it's just going to be 215 per place – you're up to 29,800 children who could be buried in those places. And the second one, we've got triple what we had in the first one. You know, I I don't know how we're going to respond to this fully, but I'd say two things. One is that I deliberately drove by Queen's Park last night. 
Um, and uh, two things struck me. First of all, that the Sir John A. Macdonald is actually uh, statue at the end of the park there is actually boarded up, and has been for some time. So they were, you know, they had the foresight to do that. I'm not sure if it's going to be able to stay. But the other thing was that the entire front of the legislative steps were had had shoes on them. I mean, mm-hmm. they're just covered with that. So there's an emotional response to this that's going to change, and we are going to have this unfold right through a, an election campaign. I mean, it's not going to stop. It's going to continue. I don't know what the provincial government does with this. It, it's seen as a federal matter. And, you know, handing $10 million is, is one thing to make sure that there's an independent investigation. But I'm not sure what the provincial government does with this because, and, and I I hesitate to say this because it is such a big issue, but I wonder whether or not they just stand back. I mean, they, they just, you know, grieve with people, but don't commit to a whole lot of stuff because it is somebody else's political basket. Yeah, but I think, you know, the, the, the minister in Ontario, Keith, is going to have to be an advocate for, if you're the minister of Indigenous Affairs in Ontario, you better be an advocate for them then, at, at least. The biggest thing the province can do, aside from the $10 million it's spent over three years with a ground-penetrating radar, is to rewrite the education curriculum and make yep. sure that all of this modern history, and yep. the last school, this last one closed in 1996, so this isn't that far gone. Let's make sure it gets into our history or our education curriculum now as soon as possible. And then also, you talked about the sorrow, Dave, and, and I think people are genuinely sorrowful. Uh, they have more of an understanding now of what, when, when uh, First Nations people speak of intergenerational trauma, why that still is there. A, it's not mm-hmm. that long ago, and B, these were their children. These were the children that didn't get home. And we're finding out hundreds and hundreds and thousands of them, perhaps. We're going to find, you know, it's going to keep uncovering like this. It's going to be a slow rip of this Band-Aid, and it's a terrible thing to uncover. What we need to know now is why. We know that the church apparently went in and removed the markers on these graves. Why? We also needed to have a full release of government documents on all these schools and of church records and documents on all these schools and the, and, and the, the survivors and the, the other students who went there and didn't survive. We need all these records released. That's concrete action that governments can take. And, and it, it's something that's done now. As for Canadians, you know, our, our, our thoughts and prayers are one thing, but they're not enough. And, and, and the simple fact is these stories were told to us. We didn't listen. No, it wasn't yeah. in our education exactly. system. I was certainly never talking about it. Nope. But these schools were nearby in, in, in many parts of Canada, and people just did not listen. These, these communities tried to tell their stories. They didn't have a voice. And Dave, you were talking about right privilege. That's the privilege right there. Their That's stories it. were told repeatedly. They weren't listened to. It was told in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It's in their reports. Why are we just hearing about this now again? Because we didn't listen. And for that, we got to be sorrowful. That's got to be part of the reconciliation, John, because we're going to have to get to a point where we, we embrace the truth as difficult as it is. We're, we ha- There's no maybes about this uh, or, or filtering the truth. We're going to have to look at it and understand it and appreciate it and put our arms around it in an unvarnished way. Because if we don't, we don't get to reconciliation. The hardest part is going to be listening to Keith's point. <clears throat> Yeah, and and I I, I want to qualify what I said in the sense that you know the provincial government, 
you know, are, can be hands off on this. I mean, politically, it's not their bailiwick. It is the federal government. Seventy percent of the time that the residential schools were in place, they were liberal governments. It is the federal government who uh, right. controls the Indian Act and all of that sort of stuff. So I that that's what I meant by that. But the second thing is more to Keith's point, and that is we have an opportunity to have um, uh, this government put someone involved who is going to be a special individual. I'm not sure who it is going to be. It's either appointed or from cabinet who is responsible for dealing with uh, the Aboriginal um, populations and to in the, in the province and moving this ahead because it's coming. You know, the one thing that I, I thought when I, when I look out over the next number of months is that it's relatively quiet in the province right now because everybody's getting jabbed and going to patios. I mean, when you think of where we were two months ago, everything is settled right down. But it also gives you a chance to plan for September or October when you want to bring the house back, when you want to have your ministers who, in fact, have got <clears throat> you know their own plans for their own ministries. It, but it also gives you time to now put in place reaction to things like this. So much to your point, Keith. It, you know, it, I don't. I don't think it's it's going to be hard to put in places like curriculum training and a whole series of other things that that are going to help you know people understand this and work through it but we haven't reached the stage yet where we've turned over graves in ontario we haven't reached the stage where we've connected to things in our own backyard and i think the government Mm -hmm. has a chance to get ahead of that to be able to formulate right now how they're going to react to it because it's coming and, and I think it's got to be more than just lip service, that's for sure. Let me just finish on this, and I'll, and I'll suggest that this is a uh, – I'm sharing a personal story, and you, you talk about how it, we haven't un, you know, sort of unearthed these graves in Ontario. My mom called me the day that the Saskatchewan announcement was made, and she was in tears. She grew up in Shaplow, Ontario. I was born in Shaplow, Ontario. Chapelo, Ontario was the site of one of the schools, and it was run by the Anglican Church. And one of the kids that she went to school with, you know, they were young teenagers, they hung out all the time, attended that school. They grew up, grew apart, seen each other over the years. And it wasn't until this story out of Kamloops came out that she had a real clear understanding of what her friend went through. And he tells the very same stories of what went on in British Columbia, what went on in Manitoba, what we're seeing in Saskatchewan. So I, th- I think her experience is actually at the front end of very much of what's going on because she was um, probably about 10 years old when the school was finally closed in Chaplow, but they just moved the kids elsewhere to other schools. But her own sense of horror around this it was it was extraordinary and like visibly physically shaken by the story um and that sense of helplessness that she couldn't feel how she could have helped her friend how could all of this happen right in front of her and not knowing as good as friends as they were and i think back to keith's point whether they tried to tell the story i get the impression that they felt like what the hell's the point nobody's listening so, you know, if we take anything away from this, I think it's going to have to be listen. You know, I was listening to somebody the other day, <clears throat> speaking of listening, and they were on the radio and they were talking about their experiences at the residential school. And the horror of it all came 
to me in, in one story. And that was at the residential school, they told the kids that they were planting apple trees in the back and that they would bring the kids out to dig the holes for the apple trees every so many months. <clears throat> and the individual said, but there were never apple trees planted. And the, the horror of having to live with what you know, we don't even have to say what it was about to know what that's about. And it's an inflection point, not only in public opinion, but in reflection of how we move forward. And all I can say right now is thank God we're having that reflection now. I mean, there is a willingness. I will say this, for all the polling that I've done, you have a majority of people in this country who are angry that things have not been corrected. The polling that I did a year ago showed that there's close to 60% of people that would give a billion dollars tomorrow to make sure that there's, you know, ample water and, and the necessities of life in places like that. I mean, we have a majority who is pent up wanting to do something about this before this stuff happened. So the impetus now and the focus is going to be on the federal government to do this. But again, I think that the province has the opportunity to plan and not do give lip service to this. I mean, it's one thing to stand up and f in, before a meeting takes place and, and, and mutter a bunch of words. But what are the meaningful things that we can contribute to make this better is going to be the challenge. And I think the province has the opportunity to do that in the fall when they come back with a plan, because people are willing to there's a cathartic experience going to happen, and they have to be at the front of the line as opposed to at the end. Um, so we will uh, break for next week for the Canada Day weekend, and uh, I, I think, Keith, that, that this will have to be uh, part of our Canada Day observances when we start to talk about, uh, you know, what does this country really mean? Um, there should be some serious discussion, not about what's gone wrong, but to John's point, what action Canada Day should be the day of action now. Well, it's a small little thing on Canada Day would be to wear orange. There you go. Just a small little thing. Instead of red, wear orange. There we go. We'll leave it at that. So um, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. We will be down for a Canada Day. Here's hoping all of you who uh, are listening get out and uh, able to enjoy that. Spend your money locally and uh, have some fun. All right. That'll do it. Dave Trafford, Keith Leslie, John Wright. This is On the Ledge, the Ontario Politics Podcast. It's an eye contact podcast. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.